Meningitis is an incredibly dangerous condition that can affect anyone of any age. If not recognised and treated promptly, meningitis can progress into septicemia and result in permanent neural damage and even death. Welcome to Plabable Pods for Docs. My name is Sophia, and in today's podcast, we'll be covering the topic of meningitis. For visual aids on today's topic, head over to our website at plabable.com for high yield revision notes and a question bank. Today, we are very fortunate to be joined by Zin, a specialty registrar in neurology. Hi, hi everyone. Yes, so my name's Zinu, and as Sophia said, I am a, a neurology specialty registrar, and I'm based in Oxford. I'm also an academic, so that means I do research in the field of neurology, and I'm mainly looking at epilepsy and cognition as my subspecialty of interest. So Zin's here to help us get our heads around this mammoth topic, but let's get started with some basics. So what is meningitis? Simply put, meningitis describes the inflammation of the meninges, which are these protective and supporting layers that sit around our brains and our spinal cords. I'm going to briefly go over what these layers are. I need you to cast your mind back to your anatomy lectures way back when. So your central nervous system consists of both the brain and the spinal cord. Both of these are encased by three layers that you need to know of, and these three layers are your meninges. So if we work from the outside in, we'll start with the dura. So the dura is a very thick, tough, protective barrier um, that you can, if you do dissection, you can see very clearly. I always think of it as being durable, and that sounds like dura, uh, so that helps me remember that. Uh, The second layer in is the arachnoid matter and the subarachnoid space. So this sits just below the dura. It's got these web-like projections, which look a bit like a spider's web, hence the word arachnid. Um, And this space contains your cerebral spinal fluid. This space allows the cerebral spinal fluid to drain back into the venous system to, to be recycled. Underneath that is your final layer, which is your pila. And this sits flush on the neural matter. It's very, very thin, but it's got loads of vascularization in it and that's to help supply and support the underlying neural structures. So now we've gone through those, Zin, can you kick us off by just talking us through the causes of meningitis? Yeah, thanks. So I think when it comes to meningitis, you're absolutely right. It means inflammation of the the meninges, but there are a few categories uh, or ways that you can look into this. So the first one that everyone should know is this concept of infective versus non-infective meningitis. And by far the most common are infective causes, especially the most common that uh, our audience will uh, come across in their uh, day-to-day lives. So I'll just briefly touch on the non-infective first, and then we'll go on to the infective side. So non-infective meningitis, also known as aseptic meningitis, can be caused by a couple of things like cancers, which has invaded the central nervous system, or certain autoimmune conditions like Sjogren's or uh, systemic lupus erythematosus. And as well as that, some medications can cause non-infective or aseptic meningitis as well. However, I think what we should really focus our attention on is infective causes of meningitis. And this could be bacterial, viral, fungi, or even parasitic. But what we should probably think of is bacterial meningitis, because I think that's what most of us clinicians or neurologists would think of when someone comes across a case of meningitis. 
And so in terms of bacterial meningitis, it's the community acquired bacterial meningitis, which are most common. And this would be caused by pathogens, which everyone's probably heard of, um, but never quite sure uh, what they do. But this includes strep pneumoniae and Neisseria meningitides. Another big one to remember is listeria as well. And that's more prominent in people who are immunocompromised. So very young children, very elderly individuals and women who are pregnant. So now that we've talked through these possible causes of meningitis, let's think about how it would look in a patient that would present with it. So the literature often describes this classic triad, including neck stiffness, a fever and altered mental state. In reality, this triad is seen normally in about half of all cases, and there are more kind of subtle and vague signs that we should consider as well. We typically use clinical scenarios to illustrate presentation of conditions to our listeners. Let's run through one now. So a 19-year-old university student has been brought to A&E by her flatmate. She sat holding her head in her hands and she's wearing sunglasses. And her flatmate tells you that she seemed like she was coming down with a bit of a cold, bit flu-like symptoms a couple of days ago, which seemed to have been getting worse. This morning, she's been particularly lethargic, withdrawn and quite irritable. Zing, could you highlight to us what the salient points are in this story thus far and what clues should put meningitis on your list of differentials? I think this is a good scenario to talk about because it potentially is something that you could come across tomorrow. And on the surface, it sounds pretty innocuous, right? You've got a young woman who's probably quite fit and has come in with um, a bit of flu-like symptoms and is a bit lethargic and is also happens to wear sunglasses. And so something like meningitis may not immediately jump to your mind. I mean, this could be many other things. She could just be having a cold or a bad flu or even a migraine if you're thinking about sort of brain-related problems. But nonetheless, um, we're here to talk about meningitis, so let's go through this. The first thing I would say is she's come to hospital, so we have to take that pretty seriously. It you know, takes a lot for someone to decide to brave the cues of a so that's probably the first clue that we should be worried about something here. And then secondly, if you want to talk about things that would put meningitis on our differential, I suppose from what you've given me, the fact that she's wearing sunglasses could point to a photophobic type presentation, which is seen in meningitis. And then this flu-like symptoms in combination with feeling lethargic and withdrawn could point to some form of altered mental status. Um, and lastly, I also like to point out that irritability, and I think that's a really important one because if someone is irritable when they usually are not, that's something to watch out for as well. And again, that could point to some form of confusion. So in terms of other clues of a suspected meningitis, I think the triad that you highlighted just now is important. So neck stiffness, fever, and altered mental status. As you said, that's present in just under 50% of individuals, but I would just add one more symptom to that, and that's headache. So we know that 90% of patients with meningitis will present with at least two of fever, neck stiffness, confusion, and headache. So you should remember that. And then we have some more specific uh, symptoms. So someone could come in complaining of a new rash along with these other sinister symptoms. And we know that rash, especially non-blanching rashes, along with these symptoms should make us think of meningitis. And there are some other rarer symptoms as well. So someone who's come in with a seizure or focal neurology. Continuing with our scenario, you continue to elicit nice full medical history from the patient and her flatmate. 
after the, having taken this history, you are strongly suspicious of meningitis. Zin, let's talk through now what examinations would be relevant in this patient and what findings in particular you should look out for. Yeah, so I think in this scenario, certainly the examination is pretty crucial in, in your suspicion of meningitis. And so I certainly start with the basics. So with everyone I'm worried about being unwell, I want to check their vital signs. So look for a fever and as well as that, any form or any signs of sepsis. So tachycardia, tachyonia, and other things as well. I've already mentioned that I'd like to look for a rash. So that's very common in bacterial meningitis. And this is a non-blanching rash. That should be a real red flag. I'd also do a neurological examination and really look for any focal neurology. So sort of weakness down one side, some funny sensation in one arm compared to the other. Now, this doesn't have to be a detailed neurological exam, but just a quick one to pick out any obvious abnormalities. And I suppose I should always mention Koenig's and Brudzitsky's sign, which has been shown to have some specificity to meningitis or really to a, a meningeal process. So Koenig's sign is when you bend the patient's knee when they're lying flat, and this causes pain down their back. And similarly, Brzezinski's sign is when they bend their neck forward and they get pain down their back because this is due to stretching of the meninges, which when inflamed will cause pain. Having considered these examination findings, let's think about the investigations that you would then do with a patient like this. What are the first line investigations in that you would carry out in someone suspected of having meningitis? And how might this change if the patient was already septic when they presented to you? Yeah, great question. And I think, again, we need to approach this systematically. So simple investigations first. At the bedside, get a urine dip, check their blood glucose level. You may want to do some sort of venous gas to look for their lactate, which is a sign of infection. You then do other blood tests. So I'd certainly get blood cultures done, do a full blood count, check their urine electrolytes, CRP clotting. Um, and really for suspected meningitis, as I said, we're worried about a bacterial meningitis. You want to get some form of CSF examination. So a lumbar puncture to get a sample of their cerebrospinal fluids. So you can examine for signs of both infection and what type or what pathogen may be causing this. So I know lots of people are worried about performing a lumbar puncture when a patient comes in with a potential brain disease or brain problem. And really in this case, you're only worried if there are clear signs of raised intracranial pressure. So for the most part, that's looking in their eyes and making sure that they don't have any papilla edema. Other signs that people have mentioned is, for example, if someone's had a new seizure in the last week or so, that could be a sign that something focal in the brain's going on. So you may not want to jump in with a lumbar puncture. And in any case, if you are concerned whatsoever, you should get some imaging of the brain, which would be a CT head. So certainly in emergency departments in the United Kingdom, you can obtain a CT head relatively quickly, especially if there's a label of meningitis on the request form. And I'm sure we're going to talk about treatment later and how you should act on any suspicion of meningitis very quickly. So another thing worth bearing in mind is if a patient does present and they are already septic is our famous sepsis six. So don't get too distracted away from that while treating a patient. It's important that we're keeping them alive at the same time. 
So our sepsis six, let's just go over that briefly. The concept is to take three and give three. So in taking three, you're going to take the lactates, you're going to take some blood cultures and you're going to take their urine outputs. And then giving three would be giving oxygen if it's needed, giving IV fluids and then starting broad spec antibiotics. As you will have heard, we've kind of already covered a few of those already. So you would cover it in your management, but it's always worth keeping the sepsis six in the back of your head when treating patients who are unwell. So coming back to the lumbar puncture, I think it would be a really good idea to cover what we look for in CSF samples in meningitis and how this can vary. The aim is a lumbar puncture in someone with suspected meningitis should be done ideally within one hour of presenting to hospital and ideally before you've started antibiotic treatment so that you can culture it and the culture isn't affected by the antibiotics. However, if the lumbar puncture is going to really delay the antibiotics being given, then those should just be given as a priority and the lumbar puncture done later instead. So in terms of CSF analysis, there's a few parameters that are measured when you're analyzing them. So you look at the white cell counts, you look at the glucose, the protein, the lactate, and then you also do a culture or PCR to identify what organism is sat in the CSF and causing the infection, if there is one. So Zing, can you talk us through what the CSF findings would be like in meningitis and how this might vary depending on whether it's a bacterial or a viral cause? That is a really important question and also very prominent exam question if anyone's interested in that angle. So in bacterial meningitis, uh, you often get, looking at it as an appearance, you get a cloudy a CSF uh, sample. And what's prominent is there are raised white cell counts, but the raised white cell count is due to raised polymorphs. You may also get raised opening pressure, raised protein, and slightly low glucose as well. By contrast, viral meningitis will present with a relatively clear CSF appearance. Uh, you'll also get raised white cell counts, but this tends to be raised lymphocytes rather than polymorphs. You may also get raised protein and the glucose tends to be normal. Now, uh, the last thing to note when coming to glucose is when there could be a potential tuberculosis diagnosis, you tend to get a very low glucose level in those cases. Let's move on to the management of meningitis. And when you've got a patient with this condition, there's three different approaches to, to managing them that you should be thinking about all at the same time. So these three pillars of treatment involve supportive management, treating the infective agent if there is one, and then treating any possible complications that can arise. So supportive management includes things like intravenous fluids, antipyretics to manage their fever, antiemetics, analgesics, and nutritional support if they're vomiting and they're not keeping any food down. This is just to keep them ticking along while they're fighting an infection. Zing, can you talk us through the process for treating an infective agent in meningitis? Sure, absolutely. So I think we've touched upon this already, but now is a good time to just bring it up. If someone comes in with a meningitis to the emergency department, you want to treat it as bacterial until proven otherwise. So if there's any doubt or any delay in the investigations, you would treat it as a bacterial meningitis. What you really want to do is you want to have a targeted treatment of the infectious agent, and this will be guided by your CSF culture results. But until culture results are back, 
you start off with a broad spectrum antibiotics. So this will generally differ between where you are in the country, but a rule of thumb is for adults and children above three months, you give them IV keftriaxone, whereas in children under three months and those who are immunocompromised, you also add in amoxicillin in there. And that's really to cover for listeria, as I've mentioned before. Now, importantly, treatment doesn't have to wait until they come to hospital. If a person comes to their GP, their general practitioner with suspected meningitis, the GP should send them to hospital, but on their way to hospital, give them a single shot of intramuscular benzoyl penicillin before going to hospital. And then some of you may be interested in knowing that there is some contact prophylaxis to consider. So people who have had close contact with a meningitis patient should be offered the chance to have something like ciprofloxacin or rifampicin. But again, these may differ to your local guidelines. I believe dexamethasone is also indicated in the management of some cases. Zinc, can you cover when you should be giving steroids and why we give them in the first place? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question and in some respects quite topical, but I'd just like to give you a rule of thumb that you can follow and take back to work with you. And you should really give steroids for any suspected bacterial meningitis in adults and in children above three months old. And what you want to do is you want to give them the steroids either before or just when the antibiotics are administered. There's a lot of evidence out there which suggests that giving steroids delayed after their first treatment doesn't have much benefit. And just if you're interested, the reason why we give steroids is just in that motive of dampening down inflammation, which occurs. The other pillar of management that I touched on initially was to treat complications that may arise as a result of the meningitis. What are these possible complications in that are associated with the condition? Yeah, so absolutely important to think of complications and there are quite a myriad of them and really depends on the case itself. But this includes things like sepsis and septic shock, DIC, and really you should be thinking about that in any severely ill patient, but more specific to meningitis, things like cerebral edema and raised intracranial pressure can occur as well. And something that I actually see quite a lot are seizures as a consequence of some infection of the brain, either meningitis or an encephalitis. So these are things that we should look out for and treatment is really individualized at that point. So that was a very brief whistle-stop tour of meningitis. Have you got a couple of take-home messages for people to take away from this podcast about things that you'd want them to remember about meningitis? Yeah, I think if I were to give one takeaway message is if you're at all unsure if someone has a bacterial meningitis, just treat them, give them that first dose of antibiotics. And that just gives you that much more leeway to work with them, to consider differentials and to organize the relevant investigations because meningitis is potentially very severe. It carries a high mortality rate as well as a high morbidity rate. So if unsure, treat. So I think that's it for today. Thank you so much to Zin for joining us and guiding us through what's the, a monster topic. We hope today's discussion has been helpful to you. To test your application of today's knowledge, head over to our website at pabable.com for an extensive question bank and revision note resource. See you next time.